Today on The Arts Report, we will tell you about the Day and Night Festival brought to you by Jonathan Fluvog. As well, we'll tell you about Lucky Nine coming to Performance Works. That's the huge uh, fringe hit that's coming back for one special showing. We'll tell you about some cage match improv to the death, as well as more death in the game of death. And, uh, and an interview with artist Rodney Graham. So stay with us for all that. Hello and welcome to the Arts Report for February the 16th, 2011. This is CITR 101.9 FM or, uh, or CITR.ca. That is what it is if you are listening to us online. It's, uh, it's the interweb. My name is Adam Janusz and I am your host and chief rambler this, uh, this and every week on the Arts Report. And on today's show, we've got a lot of great stuff, including... Uh, as promised last week, we have another interview for Lucky Nine. That's going to be at Performance Works, and it's a one-man show by uh, Fringe Extraordinaire. Some say Fringe God, TJ Daw. And uh, last week, we spoke to um, his partner in crime for this event, Dr. Gabor Mate. Uh, the two of them will be doing a sort of talkback uh, thing, conversation, audience interaction thing, uh, at the end of the performance. And last week we we had uh, Gabor Mate on the show, and this week we'll speak to TJ Daw himself about the show and his inspiration, including uh, the television show The Wire it was a big inspiration. So uh, we'll find out about that. Also, there's a day and night festival coming to Vancouver, and it's going to feature a ton of great new rock bands, and it's all being uh, put together by uh, Jonathan Fluvog, and uh, so we'll have him on the show. There's also a cage match improv uh, event coming your way, and we'll find out how it's uh, different from any of the improv uh, events you know around the city. And we'll also tell you about the game of death in French, Jeu de la Mort. And this is a documentary film based on a game show where they had people um, recreating a famous 1960s psychology experiment where um, participants were thought they were zapping other participants with uh, electricity and getting very discombobulated in the process and uh, turns out um, turns out they weren't really zapping anyone at all but uh, but they were psychologically um, you know distressed because they thought they were they were doing it and um, this happened in the 60s it was a big you know we'll, we'll talk about why it was a, a big sort of learning uh, learning leap uh, for scientists and the general public and how when it was redone in in France, it uh, it caused a lot of controversy because people said, uh, you know, we've been there, we've done this in the '60s. Why do we need to do this again now that we know that that uh, people can be can be harmed by it? So anyway, we'll find out about that. That's a that's a film screening at Pacific Cinema Tech. Uh, we'll also find out about another film called A Drummer's Dream, and we'll speak uh, to or um, or we'll have a feature on uh, Rodney Graham. I say I can't. I can't say I spoke to him because uh, because uh, our support correspondent Sarah Lapsley talked to him, but uh, but we as 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 one unit, as one arts report unit, we spoke to him. <laughs> what are we, some sort of Borg creature? I don't know. That's the, sometimes we're like um, we're like a transformer here at the arts report. We all combine our powers, and we are just like one individual machine, arts content machine in the city. 
So um, we'll have that for you later in the show. Okay. Jonathan Fluvog is the son of internationally renowned local shoe designer John Fluvog, and uh, he's been in the music industry here in Vancouver for 17 years. And in that time, he's he's built up his own um, also renowned recording studio called Vogueville, and has worked with such artists as Matthew Good, Chaos, and the Dandy Warhols. Now he wants to put on um, a sort of brand new. Uh, concert event and that's going to be on uh, on February the 19th and will feature 12 local indie pop bands which is very exciting and it will feature uh, two parts it will be an all ages day uh, festival and then a 19 plus night side so uh, I had a great chat with uh, with Jonathan Fluvog about not only the Day and Night Festival, which will be taking place at the Alpen Club, and we'll, we'll talk about why that is a surprisingly good uh, venue, but uh, we'll also talk about his love of music and how he uh, made clogs to pay his way through a music school. And we'll talk about the need in Vancouver for more artistic, um, more artistic expression and, and less red tape in uh, in putting on music and other arts uh, shows in this city. And there's been some action in on behalf of the city on that front lately. So we'll talk to him about uh, that. But first, um, first here is Jonathan Fluvog talking about the origin of Vogueville. What it was, well, I've always had a love of music, and it started with growing up listening to B.B. King and Aretha Franklin and black gospel music, actually. Mm-hmm. When, I was a, when I was a kid, I didn't even hear Led Zeppelin until I was probably 14 years old. Uh-huh. I listened to a lot of soul music, and that was from my, my dad. And so that really gave me the fundamentals of the love of, of soul and, and feeling passion in music. So... That's where my love of music came from. Now, starting a studio came about because when I was a kid, my dad and my dad, I used to go to church with my dad all the time. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, Jonathan, you're not really interested in hanging out with, uh, hanging out and looking at watching the sermons. Why don't you hang out with the sound guys and learn how to do sound? Uh-huh. So I said, hey, this sounds great. So when I was young, I actually learned how to do sound before I even knew how to play an instrument. And okay. that led to my love of, of really engineering. Again, coming from an engineering background, I moved into producing eventually. Hmm. And from producing, I found that I was renting other studios all the time, and I needed a really firm foundation to work out of where I could invite artists. The timelines were much more relaxed, and I could have a quality control over the equipment. Some of the studios I was working out of even name brand studios, the equipment would break all the time. Really? <laughs> and stuff wasn't working, so huh. I got really frustrated with that. So I wanted to, uh, to create a space where I, could, where I could foster the talent and bring people up as well. So if we needed to spend six months making their album until we feel like it was competitive enough to get it out there in the marketplace for them, that's what we would do. And it was, uh, that led to basically vaudeville, actually. Right. Now, Vaudeville didn't start where it is today. It didn't start with this, this incredible amass of gear and this beautiful facility. It started really humbly. I had a $30,000 loan when I started out with some seriously modest gear. And over the years, I built it up and built it up and built it up. And that's a 
kind of how it got to where it is today. Now, I understand that uh, part of the process to get to where you are was being a clog maker. Yeah, I, <laughs> for, for one year of my life, I made women's clogs, actually. What is the I key mean, to uh, making a good clog? <laughs> <laughs> I, if you're nice to me, I can make you a nice pair of clogs. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, while I was going to sound school, I worked with uh, Ken Rice, which he's been amazing. He does most of the prototype shoes for my dad's shoes. Um, the the beginning of the lines and he taught me how to make clogs and it was a fast it was really fun actually huh. cool all right now let's let's get to uh, let's get to the festival the day and night festival um, who's who's involved and uh, and and what's what's this big event all about well what it is is over the years I've always kind of um, you know I've I've been involved with managing various local bands over the years and there's a lot of bands that come into my studio and. I've had this idea of really putting on a show that isn't at a club, that isn't at a venue that everybody always goes to and the usual suspects always play these shows. Right. What I wanted to do is create an event where we're going to show some different talent that comes through the studio, maybe even doesn't come through my studio, but talent that uh, would normally play to an audience of 100 people maybe, and this gives them the opportunity to play to a much larger audience. So. You know, we're expecting maybe 500 people at the day and 500 people at night or more. Hmm. So this is going to be a great opportunity for them as a community. So each band can draw roughly around 100 people. And this gives them all the chance to be a part of something bigger and not have to play yet another club show. And that's Jonathan Fluvog talking um, about uh, the day and night uh, festival. We are going to take a quick break, and we're going to continue with the second half of the interview where uh, we talk about uh, the red tape in this city for, um, for putting on live events. So stay with us. The Music BC Charitable Foundation and Song present two days of concerts, keynotes, mentorship, and workshops at the SFU Surrey campus February 25th and 26th as part of Surrey Winterfest. The Music BC Song School will be open to all former and current song students and all Music BC members free of charge. Featured keynote speakers Sean Vareau of Widemouth Mason and Kiprios will take part in songwriter circles on both days. The weekend will also feature mentorship and concerts featuring song alumni. It all takes place February 25th and 26th at the SFU Surrey campus. For more information on registration and scheduling, please visit musicbcfoundation.org. And we're back on the Arts Report speaking to Jonathan Fluvog, who is putting on the Day and Night Festival on February the 19th at uh, the Alpen Club, uh, featuring 12 uh, local indie bands. And um, in the second half of the interview, I started by asking uh, his perspective on, on getting the venue and, and, and getting approval to do this event because um, it's been in the news lately that Vancouver is trying to make it a little easier, that there's a lot of red tape that's been identified um, by the city, uh, making it extremely difficult for, for artists, groups, for musicians to, to put on, uh, to get approval for, for, uh, for live events. So with all that in mind, uh, I wondered how it's been for, for Jonathan to, to find a, a venue and get approval. Originally, I was looking at doing this at a hockey rink or an ice rink, you know, or something like that. 
and it's it's excruciating right. the amount of hassle that you have to go through to have the city approve you to do something like this um, to to get everybody on board with it and you know permits and get everything in place mm-hmm. it's not an easy task you know it's it's really definitely it's difficult um, something else too is you know I did it this event is at the Vancouver Alpen Club now. Yep. Very few people know about this place. Mm-hmm. It's really unique. Everyone goes, what is it? I think I've heard of it. Is that where the old German dudes go to drink beer? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, well, yeah, it is actually. So it's this, it's, this, they, it's this really unique venue. They have lots of parking. They have lots of space. Mm-hmm. And what's really cool about that place is that they have a spring dance floor, same as the Commodore Ballroom. Wow. It makes it really unique. Nobody knows about no. it. So I thought, I've always done things very unique. And Mavogville is a very unique studio. My business approach has been very unique. Um, like, for instance, you know, on the studio, you don't see massive records of major hits that have been coming out here. You don't mm-hmm. see that. The studio's the star, not, you know, or the band's the star, not the studio, I mean. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's a very unique, different approach. And same with putting together all these bands. I didn't want to put together... You know, I didn't want to hire Coldplay and then say, oh, cool, everybody just come piggyback on Coldplay. It'll be great. Right. That, anyone can do that. That doesn't take a whole lot of, that just takes some money. That's easy. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to do is do a festival where everybody is a star, where each band has its own pull, its own draw, and there are equals amongst everybody. And that's what makes this really unique. So putting together the festival, I was met with a lot of resistance, even from bands contacting them. Really? Like, okay, so who's the headliner? And I go, I know this is going to be really weird, but there is no, there is a headlining band, but their draw is about the same as yours. Right. And they go, what? Are you crazy? <laughs> you, you, you must be nuts, Jonathan. And I say, yeah, maybe I am. But <laughs> I'd like to try and do something very unique where everybody is equal and it creates a sense of community. So with the community aspect, I reached out to something called Quest Outreach. And what they do is they'll go into, um, into a warehouse where they ship around, move around food with forklifts and pallets of food. Now, if a forklift driver drives into a pallet of food and two boxes are destroyed, mm-hmm. they will throw away 700 organic soups, let's say, that yeah. are destined for whole food because right. it's cheaper than going through them. What they'll do is they'll go in, take this food, and distribute it to low-income families. That's absolutely amazing. So I approach them to be a part of this festival and present uh, some information to people right at the front door. When you walk in, they'll be there. And they'll talk a little bit about what they're doing and the good work they do. And that is the community aspect that I wanted to do. I didn't want it to be yet another fundraiser for something else because there's a lot of fundraisers going on and right. they definitely have their place but this this idea is within our local community and I think that when people come to this festival and they walk away they're going to get a sense of Vaudeville's really trying to be a part of the community and bind people together. Wow, that sounds great. Now, we're running out of time but uh, tell us about the sort of um, day and night aspect of this festival. Uh, the first part is all ages and then there's a 19 plus. Yeah, so the first part being all ages came about because I thought, you know, I'm renting this hall. I have it all day and all night, and only people 19 plus can come to this thing. Why don't we do an all ages featuring some really good bands? A lot of all ages shows seem to be with the metal genre or or a specific thing. Why don't we put together a bunch of different bands 
that are doing something different that would normally be 19 plus, let's say, and have them have have really good bands that are that are somewhat established already play to people that aren't 19. So it gives them an opportunity to get a taste of a real show that's not just you know they're some 16 year old kids playing kind of thing. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for uh, for taking a few minutes to tell us about it. It sounds like a really cool, uh, like you say, community building event. It is, and that's that's what I'm hoping for. And like for something else too is like yeah. for years I've uh, supported you know CITR Shindig. I've always been a sponsor, probably for the last ten years of that. Right. So this is always something that I'm really looking to branch Vogueville out and be a part of the community, and not just be a studio with a bunch of gear. And that's what's really important to me. And that's Jonathan Fluvog telling us about the Vogueville Day and Night Festival that's coming to the Vancouver Alpen Club on Victoria Drive. Uh, and it has uh, two halves. The daytime portion goes from 12 until 6 p.m. It's an all-ages show. And then the nighttime show begins at 7.30 p.m. and goes late into the night. Tickets can be purchased in advance for $10 at Red Cat Records and Zulu Records. Otherwise, they are $15 at the door. And you can get more information from vogville.com. Vancouver's Instant Theatre is promising a different kind of improv. Coming to the new CBC Studio 700 on February 23rd. It's called Cage Match! Three exclamation points. And it's not only a battle to the metaphorical death between teams in long-form improv, but will also feature confidence men, improvised David Mamet, all the way from Austin, Texas. I spoke to Instant Theatre's artistic director, Alistair Cook, and we talked about what it means to be an alternative improv company and how Cage Match, quote, ain't no theatre sports match, end quote. But first, here's Alistair explaining what Instant Theatre is. Uh, Instant Theatre is uh, Vancouver's uh, alternative improv theatre company. We've been working in Vancouver for about, I think we're coming up on 17 years now. And what makes Uh, you alternative? Well, uh, the the mainstream of improvisation, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, normally does a shorter four-minute scene, similar to Whose Line Is It Anyways, mm-hmm. and uh, fabulous stuff, um, years and years of success with that. However, we like to uh, stay on the, uh, the artistic edges and try new things, and uh, we do something called long-form improv, which is... Uh, uh, you know, one or two suggestions, and then we explore those, squeeze every drop of the juice out of them uh, <laughs> over, uh, you know, 45, 60 minutes. Interesting. And, and why, is that, uh, why is that important, or why is that something, something that Vancouver needs besides the other, the other format? Um, well, uh, just like in any other art form, you know, the uh, variety is uh, the spice of life. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I think that you get more depth. I think that you... Um, much like uh, abstract painting, um, you can uh, um, not only is the subject of the painting cool or the uh, emotion of the um, uh, painting cool, but also the form it takes itself. Uh, whereas short form is kind of like a landscape. You're like, yeah, that's a beautiful <laughs> countryside in Scotland. Awesome. Right. Um, there's yeah, there's, mm. there's, it's not just the uh, suggestion that you're, you know, uh, recreating on stage. It's also the format that you're uh, improvising, that you're creating specifically for that evening. 
Interesting. Okay, now tell me about, uh, this is a three-night event, and um, tell me what's going on over those three nights. Well, we have captured the excitement, uh, raw power, uh, weapons-grade energy of uh, cage match wrestling and placed our abstract art <laughs> within it. <laughs> wow, that um, is quite a combination. You know, it, it, someone had to do it, right? <laughs> um, so basically what it is is uh, teams uh, are going to be performing uh, for 25 minutes, no more, no less. Uh, they have to come down right at the, uh, the zero mark. And uh, they'll be uh, exploring suggestions from the audience. And uh, these are all different groups from around Vancouver mm -hmm. um, performing these long-form pieces. And uh, the audience then at the end of the night um, votes for uh, one of the three groups. Mm -hmm. And then the top three teams will play in the finals on the Saturday um, so that they can essentially just you know, if, if they win, they can gloat for the rest of the year about how they're the best improvisers, the best artists in Vancouver, and oh. hold it over our heads. And maybe I'll buy them a pizza or something. <laughs> That's nice of you. And uh, what about uh, Confidence Men? Tell us about that. These guys, these guys are super, super hot. And if you like uh, the, uh, um, uh, the plays and uh, works of uh, David Mamet, um, they have been working for the last three years uh, honing this show to uh, you know a, 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 you know a real gem of a piece. So um, it's a long format in the style of uh, uh, David Mamet, uh, based on suggestions from the audience, and that's going to be on the uh, uh, Wednesday night. Excellent. And you are also going to be offering free introductory workshops. Tell us about that. That's right. Well, actually, at these shows, um, I have uh, with Instant Theater and our uh, our location called the Instant Shop. Uh, we uh, we have workshops, and uh, at this show we're going to have uh, a short piece from each of our conservatory ensembles, so you get to check out what our students do, and then the cage match hits the stage. Um, but if you are interested in learning improvisation yourself, uh, you can go to instanttheater.com and uh, fill out our application, and uh, the application just makes sure that uh, you're not crazy. <laughs> the crazy people tend to show up at improv workshops. So as long as you're not crazy and uh, you're not going to hurt anyone, then I want to teach you uh, the coolest theater form there is out there, improvisation. Excellent. And that's a full day of uh, improv instruction. Uh, I think we're going to do March 5th and March 12th. So if you're available, you should uh, check it out. And that's Alistair Cook telling us about Cage Match, exclamation point, times three. Um, yeah, Cage Match will be at uh, the CBC Studio 700, which is in the new CBC building on, um, what is it, Georgia and Hamilton. Yes, and uh, that will the whole sort of event will be between uh, February 23rd and 26th. Um, and tickets are $5 per night or $15 for all nights. And uh, I guess there's four nights in total. I was saying uh, three nights in the, in the interview there, but uh, the whole thing altogether is four nights. And you can get more information at instanttheater.com. A drummer's dream is set in an idyllic music camp for emerging musicians in rural rural Ontario, excuse me. The documentary focuses on a rare assembly of some of the most versatile drummers in the world and showcases their explosive talent and remarkable personalities. Here's Nick Panu to tell us more. 
Uh, right now, we have this opportunity, this pleasure of speaking to uh, cinematographer and director John Walker for the documentary, A Drummer's Dream. How are you doing? And thanks for taking the time to do this interview. Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, many, like, relevations in this documentary, uh, the drummer's passion, what drives them, their inspiration, and, like, they're in the back, but they play a very prominent role. They lead the band. Yeah, yeah, the drummer, not, people don't realize that, you know, especially when the drummer's at the back, uh, sitting at the back, but drummer's really giving a shape to, to a song, you know, when to... Get that big bass going. Uh, you know when to when to the cymbals and, and the highlights and, and the uh, the bottom the, that big bass drum happening. And so it, it's a whole emotional range that gives shape to the song. Drummers, you know, have to know when to support the other musicians, when to back off, and uh, so there's a lot of thinking that goes on and planning that a drummer is uh, intuitively and instinctively working at. Yeah, you mentioned this uh, in the Q and A of how. Uh, to make it a documentary for drummers, but also for people who uh, who never picked up a drum, they would be inspired by this. Yeah, a lot of relevations. Seen the, the various segments with with the drummers, uh, how it became very intimate, and uh, how they are driven. Yeah, one of the drummers was saying that uh, his goal from a very early age, even before he was a teenager, he was nine years old, was he made a, a conscious decision that. The way it affected him, the way it made him feel, he wanted, his goal was to make a million people feel like that. A lot of the drummers, they're kind of searching for acceptance, you know, love, and this is something that everyone can uh, can relate to. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing, I was, I was, you know, I wanted to make a film that, you know, would be of interest to drummers, you know, there's a certain amount of technical uh, certainly just observing what these guys are doing and we shot that's that's where the camera angles were important so that drummers could see what was what was happening you know it, most you know concert films you know you don't really see what the drummer is doing so that's where we you know our camera angles is really for drummers to be able to see what's going on in the feet what's going on overhead and and the close ups so you could really observe what was what the sticks were doing so that that was our sort of uh, what we want to do for the drummer, right? But also the general audience, you know, gets to see that that bird's eye view and that perspective as well. So it worked both ways, right? So that was a careful attention uh, to that kind of detail. But in terms of the film, the larger issues that you bring up about philosophy, uh, I, I did take a philosophical approach to these guys have mastered their instrument. You know, what does it take to master, you know, writing or master painting or master business for that matter? You know, it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of passion. It takes a lot of commitment. Um, so all of these themes about mastering, uh, you know, a vocation are universal. So that's where the film really, really takes on another dimension of universality. And I got the guys to talk about those issues, right? About philosophy, right? And what was their philosophy, right? So when I asked Kenwood, you know, so you know about philosophy, he said, well. You know, my philosophy when I was nine years old, I wanted every—I wanted everyone, I wanted millions of people to be as happy as I am when I play my drums. So that's his philosophy. He wants to share his joy and his passion with the world, right? 
And that's a kid of nine. He wants to share that joy, you know, with the world. And that's what these guys gave me during that week was they were sharing their joy with me, right? Their joy with those kids. And I was so full of joy and so full of positive energy that week. It was just incredible. I mean, it was almost like, you know, being on drugs, you know. It was like, it was like a non-drug-related high that week, spending that time with that, you know. I drove with, to the airport with Kenwood Denard, you know, and he's such a cool guy. And, you know, it was so easy just to give him a big hug and say, I love you, man. And he's, he just gave it right back, as I love you too, man. And, uh, you know, it was just so easy to, to, to talk that way, you know, about love and about, uh, you know, passion and commitment and all these things. So it's just easy. It was easy to, to, to hang with these guys, you know. Yeah, very cool. These musicians, uh, they took the time out of their schedule. They were, you know, used to flying in Lear jets and you know, playing sold-out concerts. But to share their art, to, to inspire people, to uh, to practice this art form, learn this art form. Uh, listeners, we had uh, this privilege and opportunity of speaking to uh, director cinematographer John Walker for the film that you don't want to miss, A Drummer's Dream. Uh, thanks for your time. Oh, thank you for coming out tonight, and uh, pleasure to talk with you. And that was Nick Panu telling us about uh, Drummer's Dream which uh, you can get the DVD uh, from this website, adrummersdream.com. All one word, adrummersdream.com. And you can get that uh, online if you're interested. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll interview TJ Da, who's bringing his uh, latest fringe opus, can I call it an opus, uh, to Performance Works, um, which is a kind of a special special presentation um, because obviously the Fringe Fest is not on right now, but uh, they're bringing back this one special show and he'll be at Performance Works with uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, and uh, yeah, so we'll find out about uh, that show when we uh, return. So uh, stick with us. The UBC Players Club presents... Martin McDonough's The Pillow Man, February 23rd to 26th in the Dorothy Somerset studio on UBC campus. Both haunting and hilarious, The Pillow Man tells the story of Kachurian, an author being investigated by police in a totalitarian state when a series of grisly murders begin to resemble stories he has written. From the award-winning playwright and filmmaker behind In Bruges and featuring the talents of many UBC students, The Pillow Man promises to be a night in the theater that you won't soon forget. The UBC Players Club's production of The Pillow Man plays February 23rd to 26th in the Dorothy Somerset studio on UBC campus. Showtime is 7.30 p.m. Tickets may be reserved by emailing productions at ubcplayersclub.com. And we're back on the Arts Report here on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming online at citr.ca. The Arts Report is also on Twitter. We're at CITR underscore Arts Report. And you can find out how to subscribe to our Twitter feed and also to uh, the weekly podcast on our website at citr.ca. You can get all the good stuff there, including information on the features that uh, we've had so far on the show and the ones that are still coming, uh, such as uh, Lucky Nine, a fringe show that's getting a special fundraiser presentation at Performance Works, as well as um, uh, The Game of Death, which is going to be happening at Pacific Cinema Tech. 
and um, and Rodney uh, Graham, who's got um, a special art show. I guess they're all they're all special, aren't they? He's got an art show going on uh, for a few more days, and we'll find out about that a little bit later in the show. T.J. Daw is an actor, playwright, director, dramaturg, and, according to some, simply a fringe god. He's won a Jesse Richardson Award for Best New Play in 1999 and dramaturged a one-man, the one-man Star Wars trilogy featuring Charles Ross. His latest show, Lucky Nine, interweaves family anecdotes, insights from the books of Dr. Gabor Mate, and musings on the HBO series The Wire. Now he's doing a special presentation of Lucky Nine with an hour-long post-show talkback featuring Gabor Mate. Here's TJ talking about why The Wire went from just a great TV show to an integral part of Lucky Nine. The reason that the show wound up included in my show Mm -hmm. is because it formed a a basis for a bond between my father and I. My Mm. father's a retired Catholic school, high school principal. And I mentioned The Wire to him in passing before I'd ever seen it. I just heard that it was a really good show. So I mentioned it to him once. And then a few, a few weeks or months later, I asked him casually if he'd watched it. And he'd not only watched it, but he'd watched the first two seasons and told me that he'd had to forcibly stop himself because he was addicted and he couldn't do anything else. Hmm. Now, what does my father, who, who teaches Catholic school in, in the suburbs, relate to the <laughs> mean streets of Baltimore? You know, this just fascinated me. Mm-hmm. So then I started watching the show. And then this would be a source of conversation between the both of us. And it became a strong way for us to bond and understand each other. Hmm. My father's not the kind of person that likes revealing himself. He doesn't tell you stories about his childhood. He doesn't tell you stories about things he's been through. Right. But he will talk your ear off if he's telling you about his favorite musician. Or okay. in this case, his favorite TV show. Right. And so through that indirect way, you learn. It was a way for me to get to know him hmm. in a way that I really hadn't before. Okay. Now, uh, similar, similar question. How... Um How did you get to know The Good Doctor and include him in your show? Two different friends of mine recommended his books at the same time. My podcast series is called Totem Figures, in which I talk about if you had a Mount Rushmore, who would be on it? So I toured that as a one-man show in 2008, and this conversation, I would have, that subject would come up in conversation many, many times with different friends. So a friend in Victoria said if she had a Mount Rushmore, one of the people on it would be Dr. Gabor Mate, who I'd never heard of at the time. Mm -hmm. A few months later, I found myself living in Vancouver, and another friend who was in the same building that I was subletting an apartment in for a few months basically answered the same thing, and she had some of his books. Okay. So I started reading his books, and then I was there living with a friend, and then this became kind of like my father and I with The Wire. This became a subject of of conversations between her and I. Mm -hmm. So it was a way to flesh out these ideas. And then I found out that my dad had read one of his books. Mm -hmm. And then I started reading his other books and then recommending them to my mother and sister, and they started reading them. And just like The Wire, this became the basis for more conversations. Yeah, a catalyst. About our family, about our childhoods, about the way we view the world, mm-hmm. different things like that. So it was a way for us to come closer together as a family hmm. in a way that we never had before. It had never been the thing that we did as a family to talk about our feelings, to talk mm-hmm. about our experience, to talk about the dark things mm-hmm. that have happened mm-hmm. in our lives that it still exists in our consciousnesses. And this was starting to happen. Hmm. So I reread the books mm-hmm. and I took notes. And the ideas really led to some strong changes in my relationships with my family. And that just felt worth writing about. Wow. Okay, and then um, uh, just quickly tell us how, um, how it happened that he saw the show and that, that you ended up now in a sort of collaboration. What happened was I started writing for a blog called Beams and Struts. I co-founded this blog in this past April. And 
the gist of that blog is to look at the world through the lens of integral philosophy. Mm -hmm. Now, what integral philosophy is, is the brainchild of a number of different thinkers, one of whom is Ken Wilber, who's a, a living philosopher. He lives in Denver. He's a Midwesterner. He's six foot four. He's built like Superman. He tells corny jokes, and he's incredibly smart. Mm. And one of the things he talks about a lot is this map that he's come up with that fits every belief system into it. They're not equal, but they all have an essential piece of the puzzle. Oh, okay. What human development is like, what individuals develop, like how cultures develop. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he does is he looks at the world from four different specific angles. What are four different ways you can look at the world? One is interior, like subjective, like your thoughts and feelings. Another mm -hmm. is interior objective, like your dopamine, your blood levels, your chromosomes. Okay. One is your culture. So that's the intangible nature of the public. Mm -hmm. And the other is social systems. So things like laws and structures. Mm -hmm. Each of these is an essential component of reality. You can look at anything from those four directions. You can look at a meal. You can look at the war on drugs, for instance. Okay. And reading In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate, I was very impressed how he looked at the issue of addiction from all four of those angles. He looked oh, okay. at what are people's personal experiences that mm -hmm. makes them addicted to any given thing, heroin or shopping or sex or the Internet. Mm -hmm. What's happening inside them physically? What's happening with their dopamine levels, with their endorphins, right. with their brain development? Mm -hmm. what's our culture how does our culture regard certain things that make or discourage someone from being addicted to them and mm -hmm. then what are our social systems what are the laws that exacerbate the problems of addicts that make them even worse you know right. if you take someone who's chemically addicted to something and you stress them out by persecuting them or throwing them in prison that's not going to cure the emotional needs that started the addiction in the first place that's going to make them far worse mm -hmm. so i wrote an article looking at his book through the lens of integral philosophy and sent him a link to it uh -huh. and he wrote back saying Thank you very much. I've never read Ken Wilber, but I like this article. And then, about a month later, I wrote saying, I'm working on this show mm -hmm. that uses some of the ideas from your book. I don't quote them directly, but mm -hmm. I just you know, wanted to send it to you in case there's any legal trouble. Or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. He wrote back saying, don't worry, I won't sue you. I'm too busy answering emails. <laughs> so I sent him the script, and then he wrote back very positively. Mm -hmm. So that was in April. Then I toured the show across Canada and then brought it back to the Vancouver Fringe in September. Mm -hmm. And by then, he'd heard from family friends in Victoria who'd seen it there mm -hmm. that it was really good. Hmm. So, on like an hour before my opening show in Vancouver, I sent him a sheepish email saying, "I don't know if you remember me, but I sent you an email in April and blah 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 blah." And what I didn't realize was he'd already bought advance tickets for uh -huh. him and his family. So after the show, I always stay on stage and say hello to people and sell scripts and take up names for my mailing list. And suddenly he was there, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it because yeah. I would have been terrified and intimidated if I'd known because I. I described his life in the show. I described what each of his books is about. I described reading them. I described... So if you had known, that would have freaked you out in the performance, you think? Yeah, I still could have done it, but <laughs> sure, yeah, it, I, been... it was better not to know. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So then about a week after that, he suggested joining me on stage for a post-show Q&A because theater is a really good way for people to interact. It's a good way to get mm -hmm. ideas out there mm -hmm. because the disadvantage of a TV show, even as good as The Wire, is that you watch it pretty much in isolation. I mean, you can get yeah. your friends together, but generally that's how it's watched, or a movie... But with theater, you have a bunch of people that are there at the same place at the same time, and you mm -hmm. have the performers, or in my case, the performer, there as well. And this can be a way to generate discussion. Mm -hmm. so, the same way, like, the Mount Rushmore idea is sort of catalyst, or the wire is a catalyst, theater yeah. is a catalyst for ideas. It can be. It often isn't. You know, mm -hmm. theater often aims just to be entertainment, just like movies, right. and there's nothing wrong with that. But it also has the potential to engage the audience immediately and directly. Hmm. So this is combined with the fact that the Vancouver Fringe Festival, which is a wonderful festival and a great part of the theater life in Vancouver, mm -hmm. is severely underfunded thanks to the cuts of the arts by the Liberal government. Mm -hmm. So this is also an opportunity to raise funds for them and to tap into some of that potential for what theater can be in terms of people are going to be there with one of the people I talk about in the show and be able to ask questions. Mm -hmm. you know, the whole audience of people can 
generate discussion on these ideas and maybe actually do something. And that's TJ Daw talking about the power of theater. We're going to have more of our interview when we come back. Uh, we'll talk about the allegation that he is a fringe god. This just in, Tuesday nights at 11 o'clock, CITR 101.9 FM presents Cabaret Radio. Join host Teddy Smooth as he explores the chimerical, the hysterical, the phantasmagorical world of burlesque and cabaret. Tuesday nights at 11 o'clock, CITR 101.9 FM brings you Cabaret Radio. And we're back on the Arts Report. In uh, the second half of my interview with, uh, with TJ Daw, ahead of uh, Lucky Nine being performed at Performance Works on February 19th, uh, I asked him uh, for if he had any advice for aspiring fringe artists. Uh, but first, here's a, his response to, to being called a fringe god. <laughs> well, I have toured longer and more than a lot of people. In all my years of touring the Fringe, my first tour was in 1994, mm -hmm. and I've done about 85, maybe 86 or 87 Fringe festivals since. I've performed maybe 800 and 900 times. I've, been, I've done my own shows. I've directed and co-written and acted in other shows. Mm -hmm. uh, most people that I see that tour the Fringe last a year or two, maybe three or four. I've been doing this for over a dozen Mm -hmm. which is far more than most people do. So you've seen it uh, from all angles, and I'm, I'm sure you have a, a lot of insights. If you had one thing to say to a, an as aspiring fringe maker um, about, I don't know, I guess the, the, a key to, to a good fringe play, what, what, what is it? What is the one, if you could, if you, is it even possible to boil it down to one thing? If I had to only restrict myself yeah. to one thing, I would say quality is everything. A lot of people with the fringe will go with a gimmick, which can work, but it only works in the short term. Because mm. the they think it's the fringe, and it's got to be wild and out there. Yeah, and often it is. You know, mm -hmm. And a lot of fringe shows involve sex in the title or nudity on the poster, or there'll be a catchy concept that's encapsulated in the title of the show. A okay. great example of which is a show I directed called the One Man Star Wars Trilogy. Right. If you've got a title, that's, that, that tells you everything you need to know about right. the show. It tells you what the content is, tells you what the tone is. But the audience remembers Star Wars. They don't remember Charlie Ross, who's the performer, necessarily. Mm -hmm. So when he comes back with a show that's unrelated to that, they might not remember that. Mm, okay. Whereas if you've built a following over years, just because you've done the best work you can do, whether it's something catchy or something involving uh, an edgy subject or not, you slowly build a following and you keep building on that. And if you keep challenging yourself and keep trying to top yourself and keep presenting the audience with the highest quality product you can so that they leave in a way that makes that they're still thinking about the show right. and that they remember you the next year and think whatever this person has to say I'm interested in seeing it then that's what's going to build a long career right. because ultimately you have to be in this kind of thing for the long haul theater right. doesn't offer the kind of instant fame that television right you're not going to have a blockbuster that's going to make a, a billion dollars James Cameron style in, in the fringe circuit that's right <laughs> but at the same time a long slow apprenticeship can really teach you a lot mm. and give you a lot of chops and give you a lot of tools to come back and keep doing good solid work and even if you get into it from the start for the wrong reasons, like I did, you know, like many people who go into theater because they want to be famous, because they want to be rich, okay. you can stumble onto the right reasons along the way, which is you want to do it because you want to express your soul, because there's things that need to be said and that are better off being said and being released to the world. And it is a wonderful transcendent thing to bring an audience to that point of catharsis mm -hmm. and have them taken out of themselves and mm -hmm. open their minds in a way that's never happened before. That is worth doing. That's worth starving for. Mm. That's worth devoting years and tours to. 
And that's TJ Daw, who is bringing Lucky Nine to Performance Works on Granville Island on February 19th at 8 p.m. Tickets are $15, and they are available at the door or online at vancouverfringe.com. And uh, TJ also does a regular podcast where he uh, sort of begins the conversation by asking people if they were to make their own Mount Rushmore with their own sort of uh, personal presidents, who would they be? And uh, if you're interested in that, uh, you can check it out at totemfigures.com. That's totemfigures, one word, dot com. Moving right along, Pacific Cinematheque does a monthly series in partnership with the Institute of Mental Health and the UBC Department of Psychiatry, exploring mental health issues through film. This month's film is called The Game of Death, a documentary that shows a French game show that made it seem like participants were sending electric shocks to other participants. It's all based on a famous series of experiments done in the 1960s by Stanley Milgram. It's in every psych textbook now that Milgram had participants administer electric shocks to what they thought were other participants who answered incorrectly to a test. And they did this always with an authority figure telling them that they had to administer the shocks to complete the experiment. What these participants didn't know is that the ones receiving the shocks were actors, pretending to be first uncomfortable, then increasingly in pain as the supposed shock level increased, since the experiment demanded that the participants increase the voltage as the procedure went on. Some people refused to increase the shock level as they watched the actor participants suffer, but to the shock and surprise, no pun intended, of most first of time, a lot of people continued increasing the voltage all the way to the max level, even with the actors screaming pain. Why? Well, because they were told to do it by the authorities. The modern French version also used actors and also saw participants who thought they were on a game show go way past painful limits. So, I spoke to Dr. Peter Sudfeld, who will be the postscript cinematech, along with Dr. Dave Unger. He's a UBC Emeritus Graduate Studies and Prefer Emeritus of Psychology, and I asked him if the results, where people inflict a lot of pain because they're told to, prove that people are basically sheep or sheeple. Here's his response. The first time this was run, uh, Stanley Milgram, who was then a professor at Yale, uh, did the study, and there were some um, contributing factors that would uh, direct people towards obedience. Uh, one was that it was Yale University, okay? Mm-hmm. If you volunteered to, do it, to be participating in an experiment at Yale University, you sort of trust that you're not going to be killing anybody yeah. or even severely injuring them. Right? right, because an institution like Yale wouldn't, wouldn't kill people. Exactly. Okay. Um, and a professor at Yale wouldn't kill people, <laughs> uh, one hopes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing, the whole thing is set up as, so as to be very scientific and respectable. The experiment, experimenter wears a lab coat, mm-hmm. has a clipboard taking notes and all that sort of thing. Um, and uh, another aspect of it is that at the beginning, as far as the naive subject, the teacher yeah. knows, uh, they had an equal chance of winding up on, on one end of the, or the other of the shock because they flipped a coin or, or oh, okay. drew things from a hat. So he's saying, well, I took a chance, and this guy took a chance, and, you know, he came out on the wrong end of the chance. Right. So what? He, he decided to do it of his own free will. Right, and it could have been me on that side. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, he can also think, you know, there's nothing to stop the guy from, from freeing himself from the shock plate uh, and just stopping. 
Uh, now, in some cases, it looks like the, the hand is strapped down on the shock plate, but, you know, you could use your other hand to free yourself. Okay. Um, so it's not that people are sheep, uh, per se. It's that the situation is set up to foster obedience. Mm-hmm. Okay? And plus, the guy knows that he himself volunteered for this out of his own free will. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of made a commitment to the experiment and to the experimenter and to science. Um, and so reneging on that is kind of uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and that's why they go all the way. Now, the people who don't go all the way are also under those same pressures, if you want to call them that, yeah. but their own personal distaste for hurting the other person uh, or their own personal morality or whatever it is overcomes uh, the the factors that would otherwise that keep other people going. Yeah, and I guess that's yeah. the surprising part is that, that that doesn't happen more. Well, it doesn't happen more in that particular situation, but yeah. but then Milgram did a whole lot of variations on that. In in one of those, for example, uh, they they were in the same room, mm-hmm. and uh, the learner was an actor who could act like he was really getting hurt, mm-hmm. and and the. Um, uh, teacher was required not just to deliver the shock, but to hold the guy's hand onto the switch plate. Wow. And the number of people complying just dropped tremendously. And I believe there was another one where, where there, was, there were two uh, teachers and yes. having a... and one quit, yeah. and then the other one also tended to quit. Right, showing that, that when you have so, at least another person sort of standing by you, it's easier right. to make that, that choice. That's right. Even just one of, and, and you know, there have been other studies of, of this effect, and what has been found was that even against a group consensus, if there's one other person on your side, you're, you'd be much more willing to resist. Right. Even one person yeah. is enough to overcome. Yeah, but e- even one out of many, yeah. not just one out of two. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they did this. Uh, they did this, uh, this sort of a, a modernized version of this in France. I think it was right. Um, I'm not sure it was modernized, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess faithful to the uh, traditional intent. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's go with that. And um, and this created quite a stir in, in France, did it not? Yes. Yeah, it did, and and I think it should have. Um, I'm not sure that the lesson I take away from it is the, is the lesson that other people took away from it. But what struck me was yep. that. You know, the, the um, argument of the people who made the TV show was that they were, sh- that they were going to demonstrate um, how easily people can be led to do evil things. Mm-hmm. And the whole show was an evil thing. Was it? Yeah, I think so. But if it recreated, does that mean the experiment was evil? Yes, but you see, the, when, they, when Milgram did the experiment, he didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Okay. In fact, uh, and which I don't think they talk about in the show, um, he did a very careful survey of expert psychiatrists and psychologists, described the experiment to them, and asked them what they thought the results would be. Mm-hmm. And, the, and it was just about unanimous that they thought people would quit pretty early. As soon as there right. were any signs of pain, people would quit. Yeah. And there was no reason for Milgram to disbelieve that. Here were all these experts who agreed that that's what would happen. Well, obviously, we never know what the outcome of an experiment will be, because if we knew it, we wouldn't have to run the experiment. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, so he ran it anyway, but he expected that they would quit. And he was quite surprised and, and chagrined uh, at what he found. So, so what's the evil part of it? Is, is it the, is the, the distress that's caused to uh, the, the teacher? Or, 
like why you know you say that now that we know the results right now it's think, kind of cruel to do it well the, why? The, yeah the cruelty of the show was first of all they did it for entertainment not for science okay and they knew that it was going to stress the teachers and they did it anyway milgram did not do it for entertainment did not do it for money or anything he did it to find out what would happen mm -hmm. and he did not know how it was going to turn out and he didn't think that the teachers would be as stressed as they turned out to be and that's Dr. Peter Sudfeld talking about The Game of Death, which is screening at Pacific Cinematheque on February 16th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets uh, are $11.50 or $10 for students and seniors and are available at the door or online at cinematech.bc.ca. And that's uh, today, February 16th uh, at 7.30 p.m. Local artist Rodney Graham is a member of the unofficial and controversially labeled Vancouver School of Post-Conceptual Artists. Controversial because there isn't unanimous agreement about the group's members, nor on whether it is an actual group. Anyway, Graham is currently showing a large backlit photographic work called The Lighthouse Keeper with Lighthouse Model 1955, alongside a film by artist Tacita Dean called Disappearance at Sea with also historical objects and materials from the Vancouver Maritime Museum. Correspondent Sarah Lapsley of The Arts Report met with Rodney Graham in his home, and they went into the details of the individual pieces. Here he is talking about the origin of this work. I did the piece, exhibited it last year, a couple of venues, and uh, um, uh, Kate Rimmer, I guess, had the idea, the curator. Uh, at the Charles A. Scott Gallery had the idea of, of uh, putting a, these two works together, a work by Tacita Dean dealing with the lighthouses, with a lighthouse, images, a film of a lighthouse, kind of a structural film about a, a lighthouse, the light going on, and the sun going down, the light going down, and then the light coming on, and there's two different kinds of light. And, um, and, and my piece, uh, which deals with uh, a lighthouse keeper, in the lighthouse, the kitchen of his lighthouse, making him a, a model. But I'd made the work before, and it was her idea to put the two works together with, uh, with some supporting documentary material about lighthouse keeping on the West Coast. So for your piece, um, it's called lighthouse, lighthouse Keeper, Keeper with, with lighthouse, lighthouse Model. And so you had built the set in your own studio. It's quite beautiful. I built the set in a, in a, in a friend's space because my studio at the time wasn't big enough, although my new studio was adequate for, would have been adequate for something like that. I generally build uh, sets and create, a, uh, create the scenario myself, usually in the context of my studio or some location. And uh, the images, uh, they always include myself as the main subject, so they're kind of in this performative kind of realm. Um, I work with a highly skilled photographer working in, uh, in a large format uh, area, uh, Robert Kiesier. So I kind of set, I kind of produce and set, do the set direction and, and, and the kind of acting, so-called, in these, these works. I've been doing them for a few years now. And usually they feature myself and often maybe another character or two, other two characters in a sort of dramatic scenario. In this case, I wanted to make a piece about a lighthouse keeper, somebody make an, a kind of an artist the amateur artist working in the context of his domestic situation, in this case a kitchen of a lighthouse, and the lighthouse keeper is making a model of another lighthouse. The lighthouse that he's making a model of is a, is a he's an American lighthouse keeper, and he's making a model of the 
of the Minos Ledge Lighthouse in uh, Boston Harbor, which is represented on the buttons of the Lighthouse Keepers uniforms and only insignia of the American Lighthouse Keepers uniforms in the past. So it has this kind of reflexive uh, kind of character that, you know, the fact that he's inside the, a lighthouse making a model of a lighthouse, it's uh, a representation of the lighthouse that's also represented on, on, in, his, in his uniform insignia. And you can see it in the photograph because I, I did a replica of a U.S. lighthouse keeper's uniform of the 50s. This piece is set in the 50s. And the buttons are vintage buttons, so which show this, uh, this lighthouse. And he has pictures, postcards, picture postcards in the wall <clears throat> of this historic lighthouse that he's making a model of. Wow, well, it's an incredibly beautiful piece. It's huge in two panels, and it's a light box. Is that yeah, right? It's the a light's backlit, coming from behind it. Backlit transparency, yeah, in two panels. I always worked in a diptych format, or diptych or triptych format, because I want to make these pictures a life size, and the largest uh, enlargement you can do photographically is about, is about 6 by 10 feet. So in order to make this the required 12 feet wide, I had to make it as a, as a, a diptych. And I always use the, the break um, in the... Uh, as a kind of a structural uh, kind of component. In this case, my, my feet, I'm sitting in the, in the lighthouse keeper's kitchen, and my feet are in the stove, kind of warming my feet in the stove, taking a break in this model-making activity, having a coffee, and my feet kind of cross this division of the diptych. So I always use that in a kind of slightly humorous uh, way or try to work it in a slightly humorous way. The break in the film make it very, very obvious, the, the break between the two panels. It's, yeah, it's about, it's about nine and a half, nine feet, nine and a half feet by, by 12 feet, the two, the two pictures together. So you mentioned Tacita Dean's film, which plays in a separate room, and you said it was about 10 minutes. Um, could you tell me just a little bit about her as an artist? I know she's a very well-known British artist. Yeah, she's a well-known British artist living in Berlin. I met her actually when I was on a DAD fellowship in uh, in uh, Berlin in uh, 2000, I think the year 2000. She works in mostly in 16 millimeter. Her installations are, are, are 16 millimeter projections. She's done a lot of work dealing with images of the sea. She did a piece in the past about, what's his name, Croston, Donald Croston, the guy who supposedly was supposed to sail solo around the world, but then he faked it. Died somewhere along the way, I think, too. Um, she made a piece, and she made another piece about being a very early piece where she played a stowaway on a ship. So she's dealt with, with images of the sea, and usually her works are, are film, very meticulously mounted film installations, um, not video projections of films, but, but actual 16-millimeter you know, films with loopers. And uh, anyway, I met, I met her, and, and she became a good friend of mine while I was in uh, Berlin, and I, I, I keep in contact a little bit with her. So it was nice to exhibit with her. I know we share a similar interest. And you said that both your piece and hers are supported by some other documentation about light, lighthouse keeping on the West yeah, Kate, Coast. Yeah, Kate br um, brought in some, Kate Rimmer, the, the curator, uh, uh, brought in some uh, documentary material. A lot of things kind of bearing on, well, on local lore, local history of, uh, of lighthouses in, in British Columbia. And some, some stuff written based on research by this guy named Donald Graham, who's actually bo whose book I'm actually reading in the... In the photograph, the, the book that I'm reading is open at a page uh, showing a photograph that was a direct inspiration for the photograph that I took. It's a photograph of a lighthouse keeper sitting with his feet up on a chair, warming warming himself by a stove and reading a book. So there's a doubly reflexive kind of um, aspect to the picture there. That, that, uh, and the, the, the book is actually split at the same, uh, the, 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 the book is open at a page 
uh, and I think the photograph goes across two pages, and it's kind of divided in a similar way that the, my picture is divided. So there's a kind of reference reference to that kind of uh, uh, kind of a mise en abyme thing happening. But um, yeah, anyway, she included some some work, including some documentary material coming from his research. And thanks to Sarah Lapsley for that uh, that interview with Rodney Graham. And let me give you some information on the show. It's called The Voyage, or Three Years at Sea, Part 1. And this will be at the Charles H. Scott Gallery until February the 20th. And it's located at 1399 Johnson Street uh, in Vancouver. That's on Granville Island. And you can get more information at chscott.ecuad.ca. Okay, that's the end of our program. You can follow us on Twitter. We are uh, twitter.com slash CITR underscore arts report. Or you can just go to CITR.ca and you can, um, can follow the links uh, to Twitter. You can follow the subscribe to our podcast. Um, and you can link to all the features that we had uh, on the show today. I have to throw out thank yous to uh, Nick Panu, Sarah Lapsley, and a huge, enormous thank you to Anna Garza, who without which... I absolutely could not have made uh, this week's uh, program. I would have uh, exploded like a plane crash into a thousand minute pieces, and the fact that that has not happened is uh, entirely credited to her. So uh, thank you, Anna. That is all. Hasta luego. Hi, my name is Rodney Graham, and you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM.